This is Many Windows. We are part of the Independent Podcast Network. Find other great shows at independentpodcast.network. Many Windows is a podcast in which we explore stories from the wide world of education from the perspective of two educational leaders with more than 40 years of collective experience. My name is John Cassie, and I'm the co-founder of Qualia, the School for Deeper Learning in Calabasas, California. I'm joined, as always, by my dear friend, Jennifer McGlimmery, formerly the principal of Dolores Huerta Middle School in Burbank, California. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, John. How's it going? Good. Yeah. 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 We're recording this in, in California winter, so of course, it's a bitterly cold 52. <laughs> slight chance of rain actually you know we've gotten quite a bit more rain than yes. we usually do so yes. we won't complain no no complaints um and to that end uh you know no more complaining uh jennifer what's our myth for today um i don't know how to say it succinctly uh i count on you to take all this garbled mess and make it into a nice little title for our show but Basically, today we're going to talk about learning styles and if they are valuable to think about as a teacher and to consider in the classroom. Um, I, I know that I've certainly done a learning style inventory with my students, which is basically learning styles are, you know, how, how do you best learn and, and getting kids to think about and take a little survey to figure out, are they auditory learners? Are they visual learners? Are they kinesthetic learners? There's all, there's a variety of um, uh, types. Like sometimes they'll put musical in there and add a few others in there. Um, But I think our myth is that these are important and that you should spend time uh, figuring out what a what a kid's learning style is, and we're going to debunk that myth today. Okay, I can no longer hear you, John. Is that this will me? be intriguing? Oh my gosh! At- Dear listeners, we've been having technical issues <laughs> for about five days trying to get this episode recorded, and. For whatever reason, my microphone dropped off for a moment. So thank goodness we're on Zoom and that I can see that you're just talking and right. uh, I can't hear you. Otherwise, right. it would just be all me and uh, some blank pauses. Right. <laughs> John would have to go back in later and try and, and recreate. Phil. Oh my God. <laughs> that would be the worst. Uh, yeah, I would just, I would say that the tape was lost forever and we'd have to redo it. Right. Um, better that than anything else. Uh, this is an interesting one because I suspect that many of our listeners will be saying, Hey, wait a minute, you two. I've, I've listened to this series through this, this season and you know, you sold me on some of these other ones, but this one you're going to struggle to sell me because I really think that it's, it's not a myth, right? Well, if you go, if you do a simple, you know, just like kind of Google on learning styles or what learning styles are, you get some, scholarly articles and Mm -hmm. you know uh, one here is talking about identifying your students as visual auditory reading writing kinesthetic learners and then aligning your overall curriculum with these styles that's where i have the problem right there yeah trying to align your teaching or your curriculum to 
a variety of learning styles in the classroom. And yeah. what what is that? What would that actually look like uh, in today's classroom? Trying to do that as a teacher. Um, yeah. Now, here's what I'm not disputing. I am not disputing the kids learn in different. The people learn in different ways. Um, I think we all, uh, as adults, maybe you start to understand. Oh, I remember something better if I hear it versus if I see it, although the population is generally the opposite. 70% of the population Mm -hmm. are visual learners. So generally we remember something that we see better than we remember something that we hear. Okay. Um, And then the kinesthetic learners, I mean, to a certain extent, I think all of us remember something better if we do it than if we just see it or hear it. Right. And then when you start um, adding these on top of each other, that's where you get the uh, authentic learning and the, um, you know, the real uh, transference into long-term memory. So we know uh, as good teachers, we are going to present something orally, visually, and have kids do something with it and hopefully talk about it with one another and then apply, you know, what they've learned to a new problem. Right. It's the, it's perhaps the, perhaps the myth is perhaps better stated that your, uh, your preferred mode or your, your default mode is your only mode or is, is a mode best understood in, in isolation when in fact it's all about the synergy in, in learning and approaches to learning that make the difference, that make things really stick and really transferable. Absolutely. Um, I would, the one caveat I would say, I've seen, you know, in third and fourth grade classrooms where they do these kind of learning style inventories kind of as a fun um, activity Mm -hmm. to help kids start to understand that people do learn differently. I think there's some value in that taking the time briefly for 20, 30 minutes to uh, have kids investigate how they learn and to help them start to understand that they can know about their learning. It's kind of Mm. that metacognition, Mm. teaching Mm -hmm. kids metacognition that they can start to learn about their learning uh, and investigate for themselves a little better like okay so do you remember something better you know if you do it if you hear it if you see it how about if we do it and and see it how about if we you know if we add these Mm -hmm. things together because I think there's some value in that for kids to understand that I think as teachers we hold a lot of those cards close to our chest about how learning happens I think we need to enlighten kids uh, on at an, in elementary school on how learning happens. Why not? Right. Yeah. yeah. It, it seems to me that a student in front of you who, uh, who seems to really make strong connections when they are doing something, building, making mm-hmm. ought to have enough, uh, uh, help from the teacher to explain that so their parents better understand them and so that teachers down the road might better understand them, mm-hmm. right? That seems, that seems like a good, a good use of teacher time. 
you know, and there are the kids we know, we know people who can take something, let's say a toaster, an old alarm clock, they can take it apart and put right. it back together without a single set of directions. That's right. Right. That is uh, a talent or more importantly, it's a way that their brain works right. that is great for them to know and value. Right. I think that that ability, you know, you think that that mechanical um, intelligence, I'll call right. it, right. Uh, is an intelligence that isn't always valued in school and college. It's more for what we would think of trade school is is right. where that's valued. Right. But I right. but it is absolutely a type of intelligence. And, you know, we all know people in the trades that are making more money than we are. Uh, so we don't want right. to undervalue that. Uh, type of intelligence. Yeah, I mean, two two points that I would make the 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 world famous Ken Robinson mm-hmm. TED talk about uh, about education, where he interviews uh, or he te- he relates the story of a uh, of a dancer in the twentieth century uh, whose name eludes me, whose school kept bringing you know her parents in to talk about this that and the other thing, and so they. That the parents have the the student evaluated, and the and the evaluator says you, the, you you don't you don't have the issue you think you have. The issue is that your daughter is a dancer. So, provide a, a an education that that gives her what she needs, and you'll have no problem. And she turns out to be, uh, you know the second or third most important choreographer and dance company owner of the 20th century, right? It goes back to the conversation we had last week about AIs replacing us in the, mm-hmm. in the workforce. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we ought to be thoughtful about is making sure that students have the capacity to, to do the kind of jobs that can't be sent somewhere else and that can't realistically be performed by AIs. And to do that, we need to better understand who our, who the kids are in our classroom, what they're like, what they're, what they're able to do, what they're not able to do, mm-hmm. and to maximize their strengths, right? Absolutely. Uh, I think that um, we, t- I have a student right now that I'm working with who is absolutely a performer. Yeah. And if I could just make everything a performance, uh, he would do so much better in school. He struggles with the traditional way of teaching and learning. But it was so funny because we were doing social studies and um, I have since learned that reading the text aloud to him and some of of the students, the student has um, pretty severe ADHD. So I'm thinking I'm doing this kid a favor by reading the text aloud. Oh, mm-hmm. the minute I start to read, like by sentence one of the social studies textbook, I see he is gone. I can see his eyes have drifted off out the window and he's looking nowhere close to the social studies book. And mm-hmm. if I ask him a question about it, he has no idea what I've just read. Okay. So there's um, there's no point in me reading this aloud. He doesn't have a learning disability. He doesn't have a problem reading. He's just so uninterested in it. And as soon as I start to talk, I, 
an adult voice is like the Charlie Brown voice to him. He doesn't hear it at all. So I was like, forget this. I'm going to make them. I generally don't have kids read aloud, you know, in a class because I don't like them to feel uncomfortable about reading in front of their peers. But I was like, the the only way this kid is going to uh, internalize any of this and be able to perform on the test is and learn this information is he's going to have to read it for himself. Right. And then I'll reinforce it with him. So I have him reading aloud and, you know, and still it's pulling teeth and it's, it's just reading over the commas and the punctuation and the right. periods. It's just all, it's just no inflection. It's just going on. Okay. I'm pulling my hair out. So I come across this, this just goofy little reader's theater for, uh, we're doing the 13 colonies and it's King Charles and yep his advisors. And, you know, it turns out that New York was originally New Amsterdam owned by the Dutch, right? They first colonized and they were doing really well. Like it was very profitable and England was uh, in a civil war at the time. And so they were out of money. And so here's this goofy little reader's theater of King Charles II and his advisors and his brother, the Duke of York, sitting, sitting around talking about how are we going to make some money and his brother, James, the Duke of York, says, well, you know, we should go and take over New Amsterdam because they're making a lot of money over there. Let's just mm-hmm. send our warships over there. So and it's written in a real um, kid friendly. So I I assign this kid one of the parts and I do one of the parts and I sign right. part and we just jump in. And I think I maybe he started and he kind of read it the way he normally would. And then I jumped in as King Charles, you know, with a lot of inflection and personality and instantly all of the kids who had a part mimicked that and Uh started reading with this inflection and personality and performing it. We didn't even practice it. I didn't even give them a chance to read over at first. We just launched right right into it because this was an experiment I was doing. And I thought, Oh, wow. This here's his performance intelligence. Uh I didn't even have to tell him really. I didn't explain much about what it was, except, hey, we're going to do this quick. This is like a play we're going to do right now. And they just jumped right in and it was so good. And so, you know, I'm I'm just constantly challenging myself to try and find songs readers theater. uh, Right. Let's take the in science we're learning about weather. Let's record some weather forecasts. Let's be um, weather forecaster. We'll record you giving the, the forecast for today's weather and like any way that I can frame it so that it's more performance. So that's, you know, I think there's some real value. However, I'm working with just a few kids. This is almost impossible to do in a class of 30, 35 kids. How do you match each assignment to each student who has a different type of intelligence, a different type of learning style, a different way of learning, right. a different area of strength. Like that's that's where it breaks down for me in a traditional classroom is you, you can't uh, have a different assignment for every kid based on their learning style or learning modality. Okay, so, so the question that I would have is, is the myth the learning style itself or is the myth the the notion that well once i learn it if i'm in a classroom with more than you know 15 kids i can actually do anything with it yeah that's the myth is that there's actually as a teacher any value 
in trying to recreate your curriculum around these learning styles. So, right. I'm, I, I, I love telling kids about their learning modalities, learning styles, types of intelligence, or even better. What I really love is teaching kids about neurodiversity. Okay. Okay. So let's start having conversations with kids about, we all learn differently. Our brains are all different. Mm -hmm. And then we can under that guise of neurodiversity, which will include things that we sometimes consider disorders that we're trying to look at in a new way. But right. the idea that we all have strengths in some areas and weaknesses in others, mm-hmm. I'd rather have that conversation with kids from the get-go Yeah. instead of the learning style survey. So, you know, I'm not going to say it's not important for kids to know their learning style, but I'd much rather the discussion be around intelligences, strengths, weaknesses, that we all have them, that there is this diversity in the way our brains work. And there's no right way and wrong way, even though in school we do, you know, between you and me, tend to value certain types of intelligences and styles over others. This is one of the, this is one of the ongoing critiques of 21st century education that resonates the most with me, which is that even though we've long ago left the industrial age behind, we continue to teach structure curriculum, organize classrooms, do all of our work as though it's still 1970, right? And, and as that's no longer the case, these modalities that are centered in an industrial frame of mind are just increasingly unhelpful. Just like in 1880, in 1870, the reformers who were looking at the needs of a rapidly industrializing, de-agrarianizing society Mm -hmm. said, well, an educational system that affords education only to elites and the rich and only to boys and primarily in Latin and Greek rhetoric and things of that sort, those kinds of traditions are no longer of any use to an industrial society. So we better change what we're doing, right? Let's bring in more engineering, science, mathematics as a, you know, as a discipline. And so you get a a transformation that was totally progressive then, but is now sort of hamstringing us now, right? Yeah, right. right. The factory style of learning. Yeah. That kids are um, uh, this little piece that's going along the factory line and the teachers are inputting new information in them as they go down. Right. Go down the belt. Right. Kids as cogs. Yeah. Yeah. Kids as sprockets, right? Yeah, yeah. When in fact, one of the things that that we can take away from the expanding and ever more useful conversations about neurodiversity is humans are humans and they come in lots of different flavors and textures. And right. the better you know that, 
the the better off you're going to be, right? Yeah, I I always I I I never quite resonated with learning style, mm-hmm. but I've always resonated with multiple intelligences, mm-hmm. right? So I think I um, teased this a little bit in our last episode that I mm-hmm. wanted to talk about universal design for learning. Yeah, and I want to talk about it as the replacement for any time that you're going to spend thinking as a teacher about learning styles and how you're going to teach under this learning styles uh, methodology or ideology. I have a better way for you. Great. Uh, Okay. Given because, you know, here's where it breaks down for me, the learning styles. Okay. I know that some of these kids are visual learners. Some of these kids auditory, some kinesthetic. I've given them all tests. I'm not going to what regroup them in my classroom and then turn to this side of the room and say, okay, visual learners, take a look at this. And I want you to do our activity by looking at this picture and then reading this and then, you know, producing something. All right. Now let me go to the next side of the room. Auditory learners. I want you to listen to this tape and I want you to tape. Like, yeah, I want you to, (laughs) sorry, everybody. (laughs) I'm going to put on a film strip. Later I'll explain what a tape is. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, you're going to yeah. listen to something and then, uh, you know, respond to it. And then uh, you guys over here, this side of the classroom, right? I mean, it, it's untenable. There's just no possible way uh, that you would do that. So what replaces that is something called universal design for learning. We call it UDL for short. John, I know you're super interested in architecture, the environment yep. for learning, space. Yep. You know, you're re- really uh, knowledgeable in that area. So tell me, what does universal design or universal access mean when it applies to architecture? It means that 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 anyone who needs to or wishes to use a structure is not impeded from using the structure by means of the way the structure is built or uh, or uh, assembled, right? So, uh, if you need to be able to get in, you have to be able to get into the building. If it's not, uh, you know, on the same grade as the as the street level. If you've got some stairs, you also have some ramps, right? If you have things printed, you have things in Braille, or you have things being read, or you have announcements, or and on and on, right? There shouldn't be any human being who can't use the facility. It's not about the person's uh, physical difference. It's about the fact that the building is badly designed. There are no handicapped people. There are there are uh, mal mal assembled buildings, right? Yeah. I think a great example of that is like you were talking about ramps for buildings or even cutouts on sidewalks Exactly. instead of having just a single step up, because it's not just, we all think about ADA requirements and, oh, this is for the person in the wheelchair. What about the mom who's pushing a stroller? It's the same thing. Same thing. She also needs a ramp to access the building to get over that curb you know, so I want to disavow us from the belief that this is just about disabilities because it's not. 
There can be a, right. someone on crutches temporarily. Uh, you know, there's just so many examples. There should be no bike. design. Yeah. Of any structure that by its design would make it impossible for someone with a need or a desire mm -hmm. to use that facility to be unable to by virtue of the structure's design, right? To your point, it doesn't really matter. We're not really talking about, I mean, it, the Americans with Disabilities Act is talking about disabled persons, mm -hmm. but it's not really a productive way to continue thinking about it because it's really about affordances and non-affordances. And we shouldn't be building things. Buildings are expensive. Yeah. We should, and we don't want them to, to last five years. We want them to last 50 or longer. Well, we, we shouldn't be building them in a way that prevents members of the society from using them. It makes no sense. Yeah. And I think uh, for the disability justice movement, they were able to gain some momentum here to get some ramps and accessibility built. And then we discovered, oh my gosh, for moms in strollers, for you know people right. on crutches, for people on bikes, this is a benefit for many people. It's not right. just about this small segment of the population that's disabled. Um, so universal design for learning takes that idea, which, which really kind of started in the 1970s, that all buildings would be designed with the, with access in mind yep. for everybody. It takes that idea and applies it to our curriculum, to our classroom. Okay. That all of our lessons are going to be designed in a way that all students have access, no matter where their area of strength, weakness, ability, uh, style, modality, whatever you want to call it, right? that every student is going to have access. So there are three pillars to uh, this framework of universal design for learning. The If you want to look at this in more depth, and there's some great examples, if you go to the CAST website, C-A-S-T, uh, they are really the authors of this framework. Um, and they've got a fantastic website with a, with a ton of information. So if you look up UDL and CAST, you're going to find all this information. But I'm going to give you a quick overview. Okay. And Walk to, us through it. That I think would, if you have this idea in mind going forward and you just use this lens for all of your lessons that you do, I think it's going to help you immensely. So the three okay. pillars are are just what you were saying, multiple ways. They say multiple means of providing, there are three things. Number one is representation. And representation means multiple ways that I, as a teacher, I'm going to present the information to the class, which could okay. be through a textbook. It could be through a piece of paper. And so some of the things to consider when, and we did this when we were adopting textbooks, we looked at the textbooks and we asked ourselves, what the font size, the type of font, the white space on the page. Is it too cluttered? Is it distracting? You know, mm -hmm. are there things about the type, uh, type setting that makes it easier to read or harder to read? And thinking about, you know, kids with 
with limited English, with distractibility, uh, all of these things coming to this piece of paper, how can we make it as clean and uh, interesting as possible? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we've got to all with a critical eye when we as teachers go to teacher pay, teachers pay teachers, we go to the internet to pull something off. We look at our state adopted curriculum. We've got to really look, is there a ton of information on this page that's just going to be overwhelming to kids and going to mm -hmm. make them shut down right away. Like that's a real simple example of multiple means of representation, the way it's presenting. So how do we provide multiple means? Oh, you take that terrible worksheet and you fold it in half and put it on the copy machine and blow it up and make it bigger. You uh, have, you give your kids post-it notes and you have them cover up parts, distracting parts of the paper um, and as they do a problem, then they take the next one off, mm -hmm. right? And then they do the next one. And what's cool, what I love about the post-its and having, because you get a math sheet and there's like 20 problems on there and the kids are like, forget it. I'm not doing any of this. Cover up half of those. As they finish them, they move the post-it over to their desk. And pretty soon they see all these post-its that represent the completed work mm -hmm. on their desk, right? That's kind of a cool little strategy, but it's just coming up with these little hacks and strategies and things you can do because you're thinking of how can I present this material in different ways uh, yeah. that is going to be accessible to more kids. And it's not about, let me, let me just enlarge one for, for this student who has some visual impairedness, you know, and then do something different for this kid. It's like, if I'm, if I make it less distracting and a little bit larger and have these strategies that I use with my class, it's going to help all the kids, right. whether they're distractible or not, whether uh, they have a vision issue. I mean, maybe some of the, you know what, in elementary school, there are kids who need glasses, but ha we don't know yet that they need glasses or they don't want to wear them. Right? right. So they need glasses and they're not wearing them. So there may be some minor vision issues uh, in your classroom that you don't even know about. Right. So thing, yeah. little things like that. So it's the material that you present. It's the way you present it. Can't, you know, are you um, doing the visuals and the verbal and then having kids do something with it. Like we talked about having all those multiple ways of presenting the material. So that's the first one. And, and there's like so many other things under this, um, under this heading of multiple means of representation, including under here's like defining vocabulary and symbols and math and science and these kind of things. Um, just to help students who don't know the vocabulary going in. I mean, that all falls right. under this pillar. Right, right. That makes perfect sense to me, right? If you think about back to this concept of affordances, right? A universal design for learning is going to, by its design, invite in the learner mm -hmm. to connect with some aspect of what's going on through uh, through some hook, you know, in the learning that 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 brings them in, provides a level of comfort and engagement, so that they can then draw some meaning from that, and then perhaps have a little bit more resilience mm -hmm. to go in on those areas where they're 
not as strong and sort of punch through that, right? We all right. have areas where we need to accomplish some kind of professional goal through a modality that's mm. maybe less than perfect for us. For sure. For me, that's just life. Mm-hmm. Right? But it's one thing if you're 50 and it's another if you're nine, right? <laughs> Yeah. Right. And um, and I, I like that because that's something an act- an educator could actually do, even in a large room. Right. Yeah. And just being mindful about yeah, it. Yeah. Mindfulness. Right. Not mindfulness like yoga, yeah. but, right. but just the act of thinking who's in the room. OK, well, if I if I have. These sort of five or six major uh, types of learners, uh, types of learners, types right? of intelligence. Yeah. yeah. Then I want to be able over the course of a day or a period or a week or whatever, I want to, I want to make sure that I've given these affordances to everyone at least once. Okay. And I'm not going to do any one thing excessively Mm-hmm. Because it's better to do lots of things. And that's true anyway. Right. Right. I see a, a lot of this sort of myth of this is the idea that you should, the, the, the only framework by which you should individualize is the learning style. No. Or that you should, uh, you should change what you're doing to do only one other thing. No. It's about flexibility. The more flexible you are, the more you're going to engage all the learners in your classroom, whether you have five in a class or whether you have 40. Right, right. So that's so the first pillar of this UDL, Universal Design for Learning, is thinking critically about how we're presenting information and how we can present it in a way where we're hitting all of these different types, okay. right? By just like doubling and tripling up on uh, the modalities, right? Okay, so yep. that's the first one. The second one is in a way the opposite of this. The the pillar fancy name is providing multiple means of action and expression. But what this means is, so the first one is representation, how I'm presenting information to the students. This is okay. how students tell me they know. This is how they're giving it back to me. They're they're showing me what they know. That's action and expression is they're showing me what they know. So this is having a lot of variety in ways that kids can show you what they know. So that's not just paper and pencil tests. It's not just projects for those, you know, more artistic kids. It's not just, um, uh, you know, group projects. It's that there's, And I think what's really key here is providing choice to kids Mm -hmm. on how they're going to show you what they know so that it's not instead of me going, okay, well, I do this. I already do this because I'm an English teacher. And so I have them do a written book report. And then the next time I have them make a cereal box where they put you know the plot on the front and the character on the side and mm-hmm. you know the the climax on the back and then the next one i have them do a movie poster 
Okay. And then the next one, I have them, you know, film a video reenactment of the ending scene. Yeah, there you go. I've got it all covered. Right. No, because now basically like, yes, you're first of all, your writer is going to do well on almost all of these. Okay. Right. You're, you're, and guess what? Most, most of our kids are not real strong writers. So that's going to be a weak area for a lot of them. The movie poster, I hate with a passion because all it is, is finding an image. And then there, you don't have to know anything about the book, except what the cover of the book looks like. And then you're going to make a poster. Great. Okay. No right. learning happened there. Right. But instead, and John, you're the master of this. It is engaging students and having them come up with how are you yep. going to show me what mm-hmm. you've learned? Here are the things that I need to know that you have learned over the course of this unit. Show, yep. How would you like to present this to me? And the longer you do this, the more examples you have that you can give to kids to spark ideas. Because the first time you do this, it's hard for kids to break out of that box. It's like, no, no, no. no. The teacher has always just told me Here's what, these are the steps you have to follow. And so I don't know how to come up with this on my own. Haven't you found that, John? Absolutely. Right. And, and it becomes, uh, it it becomes one of the great, you know, one of the great opportunities to say, okay, well, I, I hear you, right? Let's step back and try to talk it through a little bit, okay? What am I missing? What, what, what aspect of this is, is confusing me as the teacher, mm-hmm. right? I thought I got it. I appear not to have, right? You need a little bit of this. I'm looking for this. Where's the compromise, right? You want to give me something because you feel like it's important. I don't see why it's important. That kind of thing. What's interesting with this pillar and the way that these 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 guidelines are organized is that they they do get deeper and more um, advanced, if you will, as you go down the pillar. Um, So part of this one multiple means of action expression has to do with providing options for executive functioning, Mm. which forces you as a teacher to teach some of those executive functioning skills for those kids that you know lack them. So mm-hmm. what we're talking about is appropriate goal setting and timelines. And, you know, if students, I'm going to give you a lot of freedom on how you prepare this um, end of the unit uh, assignment to show me what you've learned, but you can't just say, go forward and do whatever you want and then turn in what you, they're going to flounder. You have right. to structure initially for them the steps of how they're going to go about creating something like this. And you may be meeting individually with some of them. You may be, depending on their age, uh, giving them some checklists and um, you know organizational tools to help right. them do these kind of more advanced things. And that is all part of the learning here under this uh, action expression, how are, and, and it's just such, uh, such authentic learning right? Uh, when they are having to go through this on their own, instead of just trying to memorize some facts for a test that they're going to forget instantly. 
Um, what are they going to do with the math besides just computation? Is there something interesting that mm-hmm. is there a reason they're learning this? Is it because they're going to build something or because there's a, uh, uh, a fundraiser coming up and you want to see how much, what can we do for the fundraiser? That's right. We're going to have this much money we put out. Uh, how much are we going to raise, you know, depending on what it is you sell at this fundraiser or what you do. And there are so many great things that I've seen out there, um, but really giving kids the power and choice. It's also motivating for, mm-hmm. for kids to do those. So think about how you can have different ways that students can show you what they know. And it might be as simple as starting out. You still, you've got all these tests that you're using. You have these projects and things and someone turns one in and it just, you can see they have struggled. Right. Can you meet with them and have them talk you through it? And me, they might be able to tell you, you may find out that they know a lot more than what they were able to present on paper. Right. So Right. Just giving them the opportunity to tell you instead of write it for some kids is going to be huge. And you can start there very simply. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what you gain from that is a deeper confidence on the part of the, the student in the relationship, mm-hmm. right? Which leads you to perhaps the a learning context a classroom where maybe not today but maybe next month you can you can push the kid to take real risks mm-hmm. that they would not feel confident they could accomplish previously but now that they have confidence in you as the teacher they'll try it and maybe it'll go badly or maybe it'll go well, who knows, but, but without the trying, mm-hmm. right. I mean, I, I, I think we live in a world where, where we don't incentivize the trying mm. as much as we once did. Okay. You know, when you, when you go out, uh, you, you know, uh, out of your house, to play in 1975 the expectation is that you're going to go you you leave the house and you might come back for lunch but you might not and you're going to be drinking water from hoses and you're going to be playing at the river and you're going to have your friends and all this kind of stuff right and your you know your parent is going to yell out the front door jennifer right you know that kind of thing right uh and that gives you lots of opportunities to try things because you're just, you're just messing around. Well, now it's all about prearranged play dates and it's about structure and it's about uh, the, the, the negative side of social media where all you are doing is looking at your devices, right. Mm -hmm. Rather than, rather than really learning through experimentation. Right. And so to the degree that this universal design can build trust, a great teacher will use it to build resilience. Yes. Right? And those things are really important in this world, it seems to me. 
Well, and what's great, what you're talking about right now actually falls under this third pillar. Oh. And so there, there's kind of some overlap even within these pillars. So you don't have to feel like it's these three different things you're always trying to do. But the third pillar is providing multiple means of engagement. Oh, yeah. And everything that falls under here is all about recruiting interest, about providing options for sustaining effort and persistence. Mm-hmm. So here we're talking about um, you know, salient goals and objectives, meaning things that are important to the students, relevant. This is all about relevancy. You know, the, mm-hmm. What we're asking kids to do has some relevancy to them. We need to kind of stagger the demands um, to optimize the challenge. There's this great, uh, gosh, this is years ago, but I went to a workshop and this stuck with me always. Uh, the presenter, I think it was Carol Jago, J-A-G-O, talked about doing a Goldilocks lesson. And she was doing this with poetry. So this is a great example. Um, So she had books of poetry just on all of the desks in the classroom. And she said, here's, come on in, everyone, come on in. We're doing poetry. I'm going to give you the period. You are going to go through all these books. I need you to find one poem that's too hard for you. One poem that's too easy for you and one poem that's just right. You have the period go. That's the instructions. That's it. And I love that because now kids are reading things. They're fine. Oh, Mm -hmm. "Oh, this is too easy for me. I'm going to use this for my too easy poem. Mm -hmm. Right. And then they're and then, oh, my gosh. They get to one, oh, this is my too hard poem. And where's their just right poem? So think of all the poetry that they're reading to make mm-hmm. those decisions. Love and it. so th- that's a great example of multiple means of engagement. Yeah. Um, so just kind of get, getting their interest and poetry is probably not something that a lot of kids are going to come in and you may even throw uh, into your uh, uh, group of poetry, you know, some lyrics from songs, current songs, you know, modern poetry, things like that. You know, Amanda Gorman, there's just so right. many, so many ways you can do this now. But examples like that, where they have some choice and autonomy in their learning and they see some value and authenticity in what they're doing, all of that falls under this multiple means of engagement. So it's just another thing to be thinking about as you're preparing that lesson, that it's going to engage all of the learners, which mm-hmm. is, I think, real, real tricky for our secondary teachers who you know, are teaching advanced sciences and math and social studies. It's how can I make this interesting, relevant uh, for kids that come into my class, not interested in this topic, but have to do it anyway. Right, right, right. Uh, even, even highly skilled, highly curious kids, nobody loves everything the same degree. Right. Right. I mean, that's just not the way humanity works. So being able to find ways to engage. I mean, this is why I talk about game-based learning all the time, because I think if you do it halfway decently, there's something about the structure of the way you're learning that that can drive you forward in a way that just grinding, you know, doesn't. Mm-hmm. And 
we've all had work experiences where you just feel like you're in a death grind. I mean, who wants that in their life? You don't. That's right. As a, as, as an adult, why do you think it's okay to expect a kid to put up with it? Because it's not like you're the only teacher they have, unless you're in grade three. Now you've got, you know, a kid basically maybe grinding through six, seven hours a day of stuff that isn't, there's, there's not even the attempt made to make it engaging, right? Uh, in addition to this show, I also make a show called Game Level Learn. And, you know, a couple of seasons ago, my co-host at Game Level Learn was talking about the fact that, that even if you, even if you really, really mess up a game-based learning lesson, you'll still get full credit from the kids mm-hmm. for making the attempt. Mm. And, oh, by the way, when you're driving home and you're beating yourself up for, for a design that didn't work, remind yourself that if you had simply gone in and you know, lectured or done what you feel most comfortable with, you would have missed 75% of the people in the room as well because you're only doing one thing. Yeah, that's right. Right. You can't design a lesson over and over again to meet every single person's unique, specific needs at every given time. And by the way, even if you could, most people want to do a bunch of things, right? It's not like you have one modality that you're good at and all the rest you are. Uh, you know, so debilitated at, mm-hmm. you couldn't possibly do anything. I mean, I like games, but there's plenty of lessons I'd never gamify. Mm. And there are plenty of times where I'd rather read mm-hmm. or I'd rather be on my rowing machine rather than gaming. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's yeah. rare for me to prefer a rowing machine over virtually anything, but, <laughs> uh, but there are plenty of times I do it every week. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so in, in some respects, the myth is, you know, is centered on the, the notion that there's some unique, only primary-ness yeah. to, or they, to, to, to this, right? Yeah, that kids have one learning style and that is the way that they learn. And if you right. don't hit that, they're never going to learn anything. Yeah, that's just ridiculous. Yeah, of course. Right? Just like teachers who think, well, no, I'm a really good lecturer. Mm. And Mm -hmm. what else you got? Because all of your kids are not really good listeners. Yeah. And I would even counter, I've known some teachers who are really great storytellers. Right. Yeah, I've known some history teachers who can make history a story and it's real interesting to people who are interested in stories. <laughs> I happen Correct. to be a person who's interested in stories, right. but not right. everybody is interested in stories either. Right. Bring that storytelling modality into a math class for the student who's a story person who's not getting any, uh, uh, any purchase in math. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, bring uh, bring the puzzle solving 
data and analyzing mm -hmm. notion from science into understanding the language of the poetry of this particular person you're studying. Yeah. Oh. Or, and history. why do they punctuate like that? Why do they, or whatever, mm -hmm. right? It's your responsibility as the instructor to think about those things. And to the degree that you do that, you actually are doing the productive part of what we're saying the myth is, right? Yeah, yeah. Stop doing the myth. Step over one street. You're in the right neighborhood, <laughs> right? But you're on the wrong street. Step over a street. Mm -hmm. And now, now you've got something productive to work with. You're not all the way there, but you've got something productive to work with, right? Yeah, and then open it up to kids, give them some choice, let them come up with some of their own ideas and clear it with you. And then that's going to help you build your own repertoire on what is possible yep. and what, because it is hard to just jump in this pool in the deep end. And, you know, tomorrow I'm going to gamify all my lessons tomorrow. I'm no. going to give, give kids no. the choice on what they want to do for their project. They get, they're going to be stuck. You do still have to guide them through. And so maybe you're starting with, a few different options. Right. And then you always say kids, there is always an option for you to come up with something that you would like to do that you think I haven't, I haven't thought of come and tell me, write a little proposal, uh, uh you know, record something and send it to me. Right. And we'll talk about it. And if it looks good, I'll, I'll approve it. And then that'll give you more ideas and more things in future years that you can show kids. Here's how one student decided to show me what they know. Right. You know, I, I got this. Uh, and then I've seen where kids have produced a little video on a historical, you know, they've done like a little reenactment. And then that teacher for years uses that as the engagement for the class, right. you know, the next year. And so it, you'll develop, you don't have to have them all to get started. You just want to start somewhere and you'll build, you'll, as you open yourself up to this idea yep. of choice and multiple ways of you yep. presenting material, them presenting what they know to you and engaging students in the lesson, it's going to revolutionize your teaching. Yep. No question. Um, One of the things that I that I hit on a lot when I'm interviewing teachers to come work for me is tell me a little bit about teachers whose whose practice really affected you positively, right? How did they bring lots of different approaches? to the work and what does that look like for you as a teacher, right? What, what is the multiple, you know, you need a lot of arrows in the quiver kind of, kind of notion, right? And teachers who really thought about that usually give a good answer, right? Uh, and teachers who think they have their, well, you know, I think it's important to make history a story. So I tell stories hmm. a and what do you mean? And well, then you're not going to be a good fit for, for what we're trying to do at Qualia. Mm -hmm. 
because we want we want this to be the the experience of every student in every class. Right. Right. So that's I think that's our um, our parting words for this episode. Uh huh is give it start thinking about this give it a try start small find uh, the next thing that you are going to present look at it through this new lens yep of do i have visuals is it distracting is there too much on the page am i give uh, do i have the kids doing something with it or am i just talking at them right uh, you know just some of those simple things that we know that the i do you do we do right. you know that's part of this that falls under the multiple ways full stop and then the next thing that you're going to ask kids to to produce for you that's has some substance to it start thinking about variety of ways that they can yep. do that Yep. Opening that up, you got to show them some examples uh, yep. so that they know, give them some ideas um, and just start there. Start small. It doesn't have to be harder than this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This this resonates for me. Uh, so listeners, if you are uh, if you are educators, share some thoughts on how you do this now. Or where in your professional development, you're, you're trying to expand your practice to get better at this. And uh, students and parents listening, share your perspectives with teachers who's really, whose work is really kind of jammed with you, you know, in this way. And, um, and we'll, we'll continue the conversation about myths in uh, in a few weeks, uh, Jennifer and I, when we get off uh, uh, off mic here, we're going to discuss where we want to go next. Uh, we've got a number of episodes still to come, and we're looking forward to bringing them to you. So, Jennifer, Thanks. until next time. Thanks, John. Thanks, Jennifer. Bye.